You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Oh, good morning. How are we? Good. We're getting there. Cool. Well, it's good to be here this morning as we continue uh, to unpack this this gospel uh, series we've been doing through the Gospel of Luke as we've been journeying together as, as we've looked at the story of Jesus, because that's what the Gospels are. And so, so far in the series, we looked at the, um, we've looked at Jesus, we've looked at Him through those formative teenage years, we've looked at Him being tempted, we've looked at Him starting His ministry when He started to heal uh, and to save, and then last week Steve talked about how He starts to gather His disciples and He calls them into the deep waters. He calls them into the deep, and so then we looked at uh, what it looks like to go deeper, and how we can go deeper by becoming disciples of Jesus through deeper generosity, deeper community, and deeper formation. We looked at how we need to become a disciple or a Jesus-making factory. That was the language we used. I think there's a picture that'll come up soon. And so this week, we're going to continue on that story. And, and where we are this week, Lucas sort of... Yeah, there it is. That's Jesus. That's Steve's picture. Um... Jesus continued to gather his disciples, and we start to see some of the first things he does with his disciples, how he starts to demonstrate to them some wider rhythms of how he's making disciples, how he is turning these people, he's called to follow him into disciples. There's some broader rhythms here. But before we start reading, why don't we just pray? Dear God, I just thank you that we get to be here this morning. I thank you for the Gospels and how they, they share and, and, and tell the story of Jesus, Lord. And I just thank you that we get the opportunity to jump into that this morning. And so I just pray that you might speak through me, that you might open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to what it is that you want us to hear this morning, Lord, uh, that you might challenge us. Um, amen. Awesome. So the passage this morning is a bit of a big one, but we're going to read through the whole thing to begin with because I want to paint the picture of, of where we're at. Uh, so we're going from Luke chapter 5, verse 27, all the way through to 6, uh, 13. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours just go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. New wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. One Sabbath, Jesus was walking through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick, pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. 
Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking this consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some of his companions, gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another, on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and he was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up, got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Straight away here, as Jesus is starting his ministry, as he's drawing people in, we can see immediately there's this friction with the Pharisees. There's this abrasion. The Pharisees expected Jesus to rock up and to be like the ultimate disciple, the ultimate Pharisee. But instead, he just rocks up and pretty much straight away from day one, he disrupts things. He changes the way things happen. The commentary I'm reading, or the commentary I read to do this, calls this a series of stories of conflict. Just one after the other, just time and time again, Jesus redefines and, and disrupts the way the discipleship is done. And so they're upset. They're upset with Jesus, and they're upset with the authority that he's just assumed. And they don't even know who he is yet. They're trying to work out who this Jesus guy is. Is he, in fact, the deity, or is he a deceiver just uttering blasphemy? Who is this guy? Why has he just rocked up and assumed authority? <laughs> and why is he changing everything we do? They're, they're furious. They're so angry. And to be honest, it was actually probably rightly so. It was probably fair that they were cranky. Could you imagine you've worked in the same workplace 40 years, you've seen bosses come, you've seen bosses go, <laughs> you've seen new managers, you know the place inside out because you've been there forever, and then that new manager just rocks up and changes the way things are done. The new guy rocks up, maybe he rolls out a new software, I don't know. Has anyone had that? My dad's hand should, it is up. Yeah, dad's been where he's been, I think, like 33 years now, and I still remember the day they changed the software at his work. The boys hate it. It's no good. The old stuff worked. Maybe they're trying a more streamlined approach, or they've, they've tried to tell you that you have to wear more and more PPE to the point where you can't even do your job anymore. Dad has to wear steel cap boots to sit at a desk. It's frustrating, right? That would be frustrating. Times change. The new guy rocks up and tells you how to do your job after you've been doing it forever. That's probably what it felt like for the Pharisees. For 400 years, they've been working in a factory building institutionalized, law-centric disciples. It's that first picture showed, Steve showed last week. Just building churches, building these law 
Bible-focused, institutionalized, law-centric disciples. And then the new guy, the new young guy, rocks up, the boss's son, which he actually was because they're trying to follow God. The Pharisees are trying to follow God and Jesus is his son. And so the boss's son rocks up and goes, no, no, you're doing it wrong. I'm going to go do it differently. I know you've been doing it your way for 400 years, but you're actually wrong. You've not been following the things I've told you to do because actually I am God. (laughs) You've not been listening to us. And so I'm just going to do it year differently. 400 years of centric, law-centric process and procedure and law-focused religion, and he just rocks up and says, no, I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to do community. I'm going to do relationship. It's that Jesus factory picture. I'm going to go out and model and make others like me. I'm going to actually get on the same level as everyone else, and I'm going to show them how it's done. No wonder they killed him. No wonder they were cheesed off. 400 years. And he's like, no. No, no. Now, there's a lot we can unpack in each of these stories. In fact, there's just a lot in this passage to unpack. But instead, this morning, I believe, I believe there's some overlaying trends, some broader strokes that we actually start to see as Jesus models how it's done as he models how he is going to do discipleship and how he's making these disciples more like him. And so that's what I want to focus on this morning. We'll look at the first bit, so we can at least unpack a bit of it, and then we'll go on. So when we pick up in the first part of the passage today, he's calling the disciples to follow him, and the critics, the Pharisees and the teachers, they see this, and they're getting annoyed about the company he's keeping. They're getting annoyed about the people that the new boss is hanging out with. They're like, why is he hanging out with the warehouse guys? What's he doing? Jesus calls Levi, who is in the end Matthew, to follow him, which becomes an even bigger problem when, when this banquet's thrown. It was an issue that he asked a tax collector to follow him, but then all of a sudden he's at this banquet amongst a crowd of tax collectors, people who were hated by the Jews of the time. They were seen as collaborators with the Romans. They were seen as shysters and cheats. Someone like Levi in that time would actually have been disqualified from from being a judge or a witness in a court. He wouldn't have been allowed. He would have been excommunicated from synagogues. He He was a low life. He was the scum. So when Jesus calls a low life to follow him and then tops it off by going to a banquet with a bunch of other tax collectors, this is like a big scandal. It's a big scandal of the time. This wasn't just a chip and dip affair. It wasn't just a casual afternoon gathering. This was a banquet. They were reclining. They were sitting at tables. This was a first-class, top-tier event with the richest people around. And Jesus and his men are dining with them and reclining and having a feast. And the tax collectors are going, what? Sorry, not the tax collectors. The Pharisees are going, what? What? And so these critics, the teachers and the Pharisees ask, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing what you're doing? To which Jesus profoundly replies, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I think that story encapsulates the message that he's trying to do in the rest of the passage. Each of the Gospels paint a picture of Jesus and the portrait of Jesus that it paints in Luke's gospel, it is that, is that he's the saviour for lost people everywhere. The saviour for lost people everywhere. It doesn't matter your age, your status, your demographic, your health. That doesn't matter. He is the saviour for everyone everywhere. 
but he's in the business of making disciples. And so when we look at Jesus all the way through this passage before and afterwards, he's just disrupting and instead of doing what he thinks or what the the law tells him to do, he is instead interested in modeling a new way to do discipleship. He's not commanding, he's not demanding, but instead he's actually modeling how it's done. And in doing so, I believe that he actually begins to paint some broader strokes of rhythms of how we can be the Jesus-making factory, how we can be making disciples. So there's a few key things I think we can take away from this passage. The first one is that you have to have rhythms. You need to have rhythms. Jesus begins to model rhythms in this passage. He doesn't just roll out a 12-step easy guide to discipleship that you can do in five days on the Bible app. Instead, he actually models it. He models rhythms for them to follow. The first thing he does, this passage is actually bookended. Just before it, in verses 15 and 16, it says, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. People were hearing about him, and people were coming from everywhere to see him. He was a busy guy. He was a busy guy, but in 16 it says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And then at the end of the passage in, verses 12, in verse 12, it says, One of those days Jesus went out to the mountainside and prayed and spent the night praying to God. Right there, he's starting to model a rhythm. He's modeling to the disciples that even in the craziness of his ministry, in, in the craziness of, of healing and teaching and dining with tax collectors, there needs to be times of rest and stillness. There needs to be times to seek God's presence and withdraw. In the craziness of everything else, Jesus is beginning to lay out rhythms. He has rhythms of being intentional in gathering around large tables and eating with people all the way through his ministry. There's this undeniable rhythm of eating and gathering at large tables, gathering around food. The first thing he does is he turns water into wine at a wedding, and then later on he feeds the 5,000, and the last thing he does is he shares a meal with his disciples that we call the Last Supper. He creates another predictable pattern, another rhythm around gathering. He's starting to build rhythms in his life that the disciples could follow and learn from. Patterns that the disciples could follow and learn from. And I think, I think that's important for us to do the same. If Jesus, the Son of God, <laughs> needed rhythms in his life for people to follow and learn from him, then we probably need them in ours. It's a healthier and more manageable lifestyle. It's healthier and more manageable. And it makes it easier for us to do life with others with an attitude of intentionality when our life isn't just a series of sporadic events. When we have a predictable pattern or a rhythm around our life, we can be intentional around who we spend it with. For example, on average, we eat at least 23 meals or at least 23 times a week. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert if you're me. <laughs> We already have a pretty routine rhythm, but if we're intentional around that rhythm, it's not about adding an extra event, it's not about adding an extra thing to your week, but invite someone into that rhythm, invite someone into the pattern of eating. Are you creating space to invite your neighbor over for a meal? When we have rhythms, when we have predictable patterns, it's not about adding extra ministries, extra life groups, extra things. So it's having an a rhythm that you can then be intentional about inviting people into. We need to have 
rhythms. The second thing is proximity. Proximity. Now, I saw an article recently that said recent studies prove there's no such thing as a visual learner. There's no such thing as a visual learner. I think it says, why is educational theory stuck in the Stone Age? <laughs> That's what the article says. Well, clearly they haven't studied me. Clearly they haven't studied me. If you know me well, you'll know that I'll call myself street smart, not book smart. Street smart, not book smart. And what I mean by that is, if you show me how to do something, if you talk me through it and you show me how to do it, I'll get it. I'll do it and I'll probably do it to an okay standard. But I'll be honest, I reckon I probably read and reread page 102 of the commentary on Luke probably six or seven times before I'd absorbed enough and understood it enough and processed it enough to actually unpack it and do something with it this morning. Now I'm not a teacher, nor have I studied it, so we aren't going to get into debating philosophies or pedagogies or scaffolding. I'm told that's the language they use. I'm not in here to debate that, but when I look through here, when I look at the Bible, not once do I actually see Jesus in this passage instructing the disciples to sit down on their own for 30 minutes in silence and read a textbook. He doesn't say, I don't want no talking, read the textbook. He doesn't say that. Instead, we see him coming alongside them, discussing with them, challenging them, and actually inviting them to follow him as he teaches and heals and eats and goes about his ministry. He calls them into close proximity with him through his ministry life. See, the disciples learned everything they did because they were in close proximity to Jesus. They were in proximity with him. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If we elaborate that logic, do you blame a doctor for constantly being around sick people? Do you blame a plumber, a plumber for constantly being in the sewers? Do you blame a mechanic for constantly being around broken down cars? If Jesus is the physician, then he needs to be around the terminally ill. He needs to be in proximity to them if he wants to rub off on them. If we want to be discipled and disciple others, then we need to be in close proximity to them. We need to learn, we need to be in close proximity to the terminally ill. We need to be in close proximity to the people we're discipling or being discipled by. We learn from proximity. When we're in close proximity with others, we get to, they get to see the real you. They get to see something real. They get to see if your house is messy or clean or how you raise your kids. They get to see your strengths and your faults and your weaknesses, the good, the bad, the ugly. There's an authenticity in that. But when we're in proximity, it's how we learn rhythms from each other. The disciples learnt those rhythms Jesus was, was laying out through proximity. I'm not a mechanic or a carpenter, but I've fixed probably 90% of the problems on my car, and I've built things because I've been in close proximity to others who know what they're doing. I've been in close proximity with people who've actually invited me into their life, haven't just invited me out for coffee, but have invited me into their life, and I've watched and learnt and done things with them. I have a much better idea now than I did a week ago how to build a park bench, because I spent a week in close proximity with Marky, who is a builder, who does know what he's doing. Through proximity we learn, rather than just doing it on his own, probably in half the time. <laughs> 
Proximity is how we learn. Steve said a little while ago in a sermon, we are all being discipled. It's just a question of what by. It's just a question of what by. In other words, that could be the news. That could be the politicians. That could be your teacher at school. It could be Bluey, the Wiggles. I don't know what it is. Social media, everyone is being influenced by something. Everyone is being discipled by something. But what that means is that when you're in close proximity with people, you're actually discipling them. (laughs) Whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you realize what you're doing, you're actually discipling them. And so we need to be intentional about who we're in close proximity with. We need to be asking ourselves, who are we discipling and are we in close proximity with them? Who are we discipling and are we in close proximity with them? Are we actually inviting them over and into our house for coffee while the kids are running around in school holidays? Are we inviting them over to work on the car or to take part in that passionate hobby you have? Or are you just catching up with them once a month at a coffee shop at arm's length in some sterile, neutral environment? Who are you discipling? Who are we being discipled by? And are we in close proximity to them? Jesus didn't say, you guys stay here. I'm going to go do a bunch of things and I'll just come back and tell you about it. He said, follow me, drop what you're doing and come with me, be in proximity with me. And that is how the disciples learnt everything they did. Proximity. The third thing is this, you've got to have a life. <laughs> you need a life. And what I mean by this is that you need to have time in your lifestyle to actually enjoy your life. At times, Jesus retreated and he spent time alone in God's presence. And at other times, he was doing his ministry, his work. You know, he was teaching to the crowds. He was probably doing a lot of walking. He was healing and and sharing the gospel. And what I mean by that is that he actually had rhythms that would be similar to our work rhythms. He had a goal. He had a mission. he He was doing something. But he also made sure that he had a life. He made sure that he wasn't so busy with scheduled crusades or guest speaking in every town conference he went, in every town he went to. Instead, he made sure that when he was there, he had time to meet and share a meal or do life with people around him. He didn't jam pack everything in. He made sure there was boundaries. He made sure he had time to have a life with others. If we look at that second story in the passage, the Pharisees questioned Jesus about fasting. And he says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and in those days they will fast. In other words, he's saying, I'm here now, and while I have the opportunity to eat and drink and and build a relationship with people around me, I'm going to take that opportunity. I'm here now. He's more interested in deeper relationships than this legalistic culture that he was living in. He was more interested in relationship than the culture around him. Another time on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue and he's teaching on the Sabbath in a synagogue and there's this man with a lame hand. Sounds like it could be a lyric in the song. And he says, I ask you, what is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or destroy it? And so he saves, heals the man's harm. Um, Jesus was in the business of caring for others. Jesus was in the business of taking care of those who needed it. He wasn't interested in conforming to this legalistic culture around him. He wasn't interested in doing what society said was good, what society, what the Pharisees said was right. He was interested in relationship and doing life with others. Today we live in a society that is so fast-paced, that tells us we need the grind, that we need 
to climb the rungs of success, that we need to make more money, that we need to have a better job, that we need to be fitter and stronger, that we need to have our own brand or be unique, whatever that means, that we need to constantly be better, that whatever you are, it's not enough. If, you ha- if you're not the boss, be the boss. If you are the boss, become your own boss. Start your own business. There's always something more. We always need more. We have to succeed in this life. That's what the world tells us. But if we just get caught up in those, those rhythms of just work, just busyness, just trying to succeed and thrive in, in today's society, there is no time left for people. There's no time left to invite people in. There's no time left to cultivate community. There's no time left to cultivate community. If we're always doing programs and just running from one activity to the other, when are we going to meet a tax collector? When are we going to meet the terminally ill? Are we in such a rush that when we, when we take off from work at five o'clock or when we duck away from that family gathering or when we drop the kids at school, we miss the parent at the drop-off zone that needed to chat or that colleague who <laughs> is just not doing so good? Are we in such a rush that we miss the life-giving conversations because we're just constantly chasing the grind. If we don't show people our life, how are we supposed to connect them to Jesus? If we don't show people our life, how are we supposed to connect them to Jesus? It's not about adding extra programs. It's not about adding extra things to our week. But instead, it's just simply about actually having a life, having a life to invite people into. It's about actually having a life to invite people into. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and you're tired. <laughs> you're feeling exhausted. You're thinking, Lockie, I just, <laughs> I don't have the energy for people right now. I don't. People are busy. People are annoying. People are everything. And I just, I'm not, I'm not really an extrovert. It's not my thing. I'm tired. People are my thing right now. Maybe you're thinking, you have no idea how busy I am. It's easy for you to say that. You have no idea how busy I am. You don't understand the balls I'm juggling. Work needs me, the kids need me, my social media, my, my followers need me, whatever it is. Maybe you don't get it, Lockie. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I've got too much on. You don't understand. Well, let me remind you this morning. Jesus has a life to give you. Jesus has a life to give you. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And what he means by that is when he gave his life on the cross... He did that so that we might have one, so that we can be free of the burdens of this world, so that we can lean on Jesus and actually live and actually give our lives to him, sorry. He died on the cross so that we might have freedom not to worry about the grind, not to be anxious about tomorrow, instead to have a life. Because we're not trying to prove anything to anyone on this world. We don't know, we don't owe anything to anyone on this world. Because when we rest in Him, when we give our life to Him, the treasure is in heaven. The victory has already been won. Jesus gave His life so that we can have one. So that we don't have to, like, that we don't have to follow and, and try for earthly success. But instead, we can have a life. We can create space for others. A life worth living, if you ask me. A life that's greater than just yourself. A life that's greater than just busyness, a life with others. Jesus gives us a life. 
What excited me when I looked at this passage in Luke is that when we see Jesus make disciples in the, in the, in the Jesus factory, what he's actually doing is he's just cultivating community. He's cultivating community. That's what he's doing. And it affirms, when we look at this passage, it affirms what we're doing in this, in this transformation trek journey we're on. As we look at these rhythms, when we look at this passage in Luke, there's rhythms of, of time in prayer, of time of rest and slowing down and creating space in your life so that we can ultimately cultivate community, cultivate a gospel-centered, God-focused community. So as we wrap up this morning... We've got three questions. Three questions to think about this week. The first one is this. What rhythms do you have in your life? What rhythms do you already have? And how are you going to start to implement them? Or if you don't have them, how, how are you going to start looking for rhythms? The second question, who are we discipling? Who are we being discipled by? And are we in close proximity to them? Who are we discipling? Who are we being discipled by? And are we in close proximity to them? And the third question, do I have a life? <laughs> what does your current life look like? And is it a life that this world wants for you? Or is it the life that Jesus wants for you? Do I have a life? What does my current life look like? Is it a life that has space for others? Or is it a life that chases the grind? As we begin season two here at Burley, let's be a church that is making disciples, a church that is just a Jesus-making factory. <laughs> Let's be a church that is going deeper, that is following the rhythms of Jesus and making space to cultivate community. There's so much we can unpack in these conflict situations with Jesus in, and the Pharisees here, but he's not interested in the law. He's not interested in what the culture is saying. He says, no, I'm here and I'm in the business of making disciples. I'm in the business of being in proximity with others. I'm in the business of making disciples. Jesus has a life to give you. He wants us to live a life. Are you ready to take it? Are you ready to take it? Let's pray. Dear God, I just... I thank you for the Gospels. I thank you that we can look at these stories of Jesus and how he's just, he's not interested. <laughs> he's not interested in following what this world, what society tells us we should be doing. But instead, he says, no, let's be different. Lord, I just, I thank you that even in the busyness of this world, that there's something greater that we can look forward to. I thank you that because of the sacrifice on the cross, we can have a life that is greater than this world, that, that you've won the victory. The victory has been won and that we don't owe anything to anyone here. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone here because our victory, our treasures are in heaven. And so God, I just pray this morning that if we're feeling tired, if we're exhausted, if we just don't feel like we're in the business of people right now, Lord, that you might just restore us, that you might just fill us with your love, that you might remind us of, of why it is that we believe what we do, why it is that we, we do what we do, Lord, and that you might just fill us with your love and your energy, that a boldness to talk to those people we might not usually talk to, but just to be in proximity with others. Lord, I just, yeah, pray that you can come and, and be in proximity with us today. As we go about our week, that we can be in proximity with you and that as a result of that, we might be in proximity with others. Lord, I thank you for the rhythms, the rhythms you've modeled. And I just pray that you might challenge us to, to bring rhythms into our own life. 
that we can stop living a sporadic life of events that just happen. Instead, that we can just be intentional in that space. That we can be intentional that you might show us the people you want us to be in proximity with so that we can be your disciples and make other disciples. That we at Burley can be a Jesus-making factory. Lord, I thank you for the life you've given. I thank you that we get to have a life because you gave yours. Amen.